This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity issues from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, and I'm very excited for this first official episode of Militantly Mixed. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the promo and the mini-sode with my boy Blurred Vision yet, please go back and take a listen because it gives a bit of an insight into me and why I have created this podcast. My first guest on Militantly Mixed is Canadian-based rapper, teacher, and father of five, John Corbin. He and I connected through Twitter while I was looking for folks to interview for the podcast and we got on Skype for what was supposed to be just a quick getting to know you chat turned into actually like a two hour long therapy section between the two of us. We bonded on the shared experience of being mixed race, but we also were in awe of the differences of what our lives were like as mixed race people. By the end of our first talk, I knew he was someone that I wanted to have on this podcast and in my life too. I think uh, we ha- our experiences are so different. I would say, I would go so far as to even say that we were had sort of opposite experiences, that he's just an interesting person that I think getting to know him kind of opened up my, my way of thinking about being a mixed race person. Uh, he didn't actually come to hip hop until his college years, but now he uses art to speak about race and his own identity. I'll let him introduce himself properly, but before that, uh, allow me to play a brief clip of his song Confessions of a Mixed Race Kid. You can feel them staring in. Well, that's what I'm on right now. Just watch me walk around in my small town. Pretty but pretty white. It's silly, I still fright that they'll only see me as black when I mostly feel white. I'm a mixed up kid in a self-assigned Muspelan suburban bid, but focus on aesthetics. Why don't you t- uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself from your own words and talk about your music and your background, and then we can we can get into it. Uh, sure thing. Um, uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, my name is John Corbin. I'm a high school teacher, uh, husband and father. Uh, live in uh, just west of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. For the last 13 years, I've been a hip hop artist and spoken word artist here in and around Toronto. I'm rapping on everyday things, but also bigger issues like faith, love, um, race, identity social justice fell in love with hip-hop as a university student and and have been blessed to record under first under the name the runaway and then as my own name over this time and and i'm glad to be here (laughs) so what was the runaway what made you what made you choose that as your first hip-hop name well that was uh that was an interesting story. So when I was, let me see, 16, uh, I took a trip to New York City and did some service work there, um, serving in soup kitchens, um, working with the homeless on the street. And I was staying in a place that was housing groups like these to travel, to go around and do service. And I met a bunch of Americans, uh, some folks, uh, university students from Indiana and from North Carolina and sort of maintained friendships with them. And that sort of good natured ribbing that happened between friends as one of my friends from North Carolina giving me a hard time as a Canadian. Oh, you guys, you know, you guys just, you don't get involved in any world conflicts. You know, when things get tough, you, you just, you're just a bunch of <laughs> runaway. And, you know, the Canadian military might is not really a, a phrase that's often spoken. So right. uh, 
I, I can understand why she would deliver that opinion. And I said, well, if you think, you know, if that's what you think, then I guess I'm just a runaway. And uh, it it just kind of stuck. Mm. Uh, I sort of thought, oh, it sounded cool, adopted it myself. And it was one of those things that I think felt fit my aesthetic when I started rhyming because I wanted to be different. So I could mm. see the landscape of where hip hop was going and what they was talking about. And I wanted to be different. And if it was popular, I probably was going to take several steps back first to not dive in and second to analyze um, its value. And so, you know, I've never been a, a trendsetter, barely a trend follower. I, <laughs> I, I tend to go the opposite direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Runaway. When did you make that transition? When when did the runaway go back to being John? Yeah. So 2015, I would say, is uh, when I started to when things started to come together in my mind in the in the the years preceding that I had put out a a hip hop and folk music project. And so I was experimenting with really toning down some of the like the harsher sounds of hip hop mm-hmm. and seeing what I could sort of blend together. Uh, it also reflected the music I was listening to, primarily thanks to my wife. But when we were chilling in the house, it was certainly going to be more the folk music than it would be, you know, common or, or most deaf. So I wanted to, to find that to find that balance within myself. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I had all these collections of songs that that weren't fitting that project and I didn't know what to do with them. And it started primarily with um, what would become my, my 2016 album, A New Direction. Starting the album by saying, I don't like myself. I'm not treating myself well. And mm-hmm. I recognize that this is a problem. Uh, and, and then started exploring this on the journey that would then become the record. And as a part of that, you know, I had some, I definitely had some, you know, personal and I felt spiritual experiences that made me recognize that instead of rhyming under a pseudonym, if I'm going to embrace myself, let's start there. Let's, let's face the facts the same way that I have been doing um, with this music mm-hmm. and face myself. What don't I like about myself? What, um, what pain do I need to lean into to find the healing necessary to be able to be comfortable mm. uh, in my own skin? And, that, and that's, you know, a new direction started that journey for me. But I would say that, yeah, that 2015 leading into making that album, I realized personally that I had some, some work to do and, mm-hmm. and that reflected in the music. Just a slightly off topic, but because you brought up New Direction for John Corbin, towards the end, when you have people of that track, when people are cutting in and they're, and they're like, you know, this is so-and-so from such-and-such and, you know, keep mm-hmm. going, that stuff. There is somebody on that track that says they're from Cut and Shoot, Texas. And that made me laugh so yes. hard because one of my closest friends in Texas is from Cut and Shoot. And it's such a small town that like nobody but Texans have ever heard of, like, nobody but probably <laughs> Southern <laughs> Texas have ever heard of. So I was so excited to hear cut and shoot Texas referenced in something unrelated to my friend Erica. <laughs> I, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Jason know. Um, we had these we had these uh, folks from all over. If you're familiar with hip hop, which probably many of your listeners are, mm-hmm. starting those mixtapes. You know, this is such and such from yeah. such and such. And when I'm not, you know, d- doing the laundry, I'm listening to yeah militantly mixed you know and so we wanted i wanted to do that and and they sort of would give up their their pseudonyms as well yeah. on on the track and sort of spur me forward yeah cut and shoot i'm i'm so glad that he mentioned it now because nobody else mentioned where they were from right no that's right yeah i got a little bit of a buzz from it i was gonna send the track to my friend as erica too because she she's one of the countryest people i had ever met and i would just like <laughs> fell in love with each other because she's so hilarious but i 
I, I was, it was the whole, because the way it's spelled, it's actually cut and apostrophe shoot. And I couldn't believe that that was the name of an actual town. So, <laughs> so that was cute. I was really excited to hear that just a little bit off topic, but so when we connected, one of the things that really intrigued me about you uh, and what, and like your early email to me was that you, you live in Toronto or in the, uh, in and around Toronto and mm-hmm. you were Although a product of a interracial couple, you were mostly raised in a, a white culture, a white neighborhood with your the white side of your family. You didn't have a whole lot of exposure to the other side of your family. But you do present, like to me, when I see you, I think the first thing I, I, I said when I saw you on pop up on camera is like, oh my gosh, you could be my cousin. Like we, I feel like we kind of resemble family wise. You present, mm-hmm. obviously to me, mixed race. To others, you may present as black or light skinned black or something. Can we talk a little bit about your upbringing, your background, and then what, what kind of got you into confronting and dealing with some of the race issues that you have. Right. So I've always I've always been in and around the Toronto area, um, probably no more than an hour outside of it. Um, my dad is a, a black man from Guyana. Uh, he immigrated in the early 80s, maybe late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. And he was visiting here uh, in the 70s and met my mom. My mom is a white woman, Canadian born. Um, her family heritage is uh, quite strongly and culturally uh, Mennonite of the Mennonite Christian tradition, which has ties to Swiss and German, I think is our family. The, those are the strongest mm. non-Canadian traits. So uh, from the jump, it was a very interesting mix where my dad would sort of connect himself to the West Indian community that existed in Toronto. And so, you know, they would, you would have um, tons of people up to visit for the Caravana Festival every year. Um, friends of his that were either from Guyana or Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados. There was, there's certainly that sort of ethic in the house, just in expression. And then my mom's side of the family is very very strongly connected, um, really well researched uh, and and documented. Maybe that's the best way, but well documented. Um, there are very very thick books of our, our family lines, and it's mm. um, the, called called the Mennonite Game. If you meet someone with a familiar last name, you can probably find them in the book, and we're probably related. Mm. Uh, I once I once in uh, in Oakville, which is a, a, a Toronto suburb, a, a white Toronto suburb, uh, taught a, this little grade nine scrawny kid. Turns out we were fifth cousins. Oh, um, wow. It just it just it, it just is, you know, we're, we're related in some way. Mm. Um, so yeah, so we grew up in the Toronto air in the Toronto area. Actually, in some areas that, w- that are now been absorbed into Toronto. Um, so it was a very multicultural environment. Also lower middle class. So that has its, its own ethic and, and, and grounding, I would say. Lots mm-hmm. of down-to-earth people that are willing to hang out and talk and, and congregate on the streets and that, that kind of stuff. But my my dad was very strong, uh, very strong opinions about that he wanted us to follow a Christian faith. And so he sent us to a Christian school that was uh, a private school that was connected uh, with our church. So the church was a Pentecostal church, which is a a uh, very high energy expression. And it was also very uh, communal, which is great um, because everyone in the church was your aunt or your uncle. And that means everyone was looking out for you. Anyone could discipline you or scold you. They wanted to sort of set you on the right path. But I remember it being racially diverse, which mm. I only considered in the absence of it when, right. my, par- when my parents got divorced. Um, so 
my parents separated when I was 10 and then um, probably finalized a divorce and moved when I was 12. And then things just changed radically for me. I was removed from that school, put in public school. And then uh, when my mom decided to move, she moved to an area that had an academic program for high school that was designed for someone like me, for some like uh, that would be that would do well for my skill set. So she targeted a school essentially, but the school was in an extremely rich uh, pocket of Mississauga, again another suburb of Ontario of mm-hmm. Toronto, mm-hmm. and we didn't live in that rich neighborhood because my mom was struggling financially from the divorce. We just lived outside of it, but I was able to go to that school because of my educational program. And suddenly we live, I was going to a white school, 1600 kids, maybe 50 black students. And we lived in a uh, primarily white neighborhood. And then we found a new church, which fits more of my mom's expression. It was a, it was a Baptist church, but it was a lot calmer. And of course, Mennonite tradition is 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 far from expressive. So sure. Mennonite v Pentecostal was always uh, always a source of tension, I think, behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So so for my mom's sake, let's go find something that suits her because she's the primary caregiver now. Yeah. So my world changed uh, drastically. The the church I went to was very welcoming. By the time we sort of settled down, had moved and and found this church community, I was into high school. I was probably 15 years old, and 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 they recognized that myself and my younger brother, who was four years younger, we didn't have any any male role models. And so there would be, there were lots of people from the pastor on down that would, you know, take us to sporting events or or, or go grab a bite to eat or, you know, we'll play on the softball team or, or whatever, anything to keep us included. So it was wonderfully mm-hmm. inclusive and showing me some modeling of how to live as a man, whether that was intentional or not, or maybe just compassion, I don't know. But there's a long list of people that I credit with helping me uh, simply from being around. Mm. In high school, however, it was it was very different. The the majority of the black students came from this small townhouse complex that was completely out of place with the rest of the rich suburban environment. And I have no idea why it was there, whether it was sort of government-sponsored housing. I never knew. It was not a place to go. Mm. And for... For someone like me, it certainly wasn't because I just, I was awkward. Maybe I'm awkward in general, but certainly around other black folks or people of color. And that neighborhood was, yeah, it was gambling and, you know, people running around on the streets. It, it reminded me uh, a lot of sort of stereotypes. I, you know, I'd say to 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 people who wouldn't know, I said, like, think of, think of the, you know, think of Jake Hoyt walking down the street in training day, you know, in the, in the jungle. And, and it was that minus the guns, mm. you know, okay. uh, and I didn't have any, thing in common with those folks. We played on the same basketball team, but I just didn't fit in. When was it obvious that although these were other black students, you didn't fit in with them? Um, it wasn't it wasn't introduced. It was more in just I think immediately starting out on the wrong foot, you know, grade nine, basketball team. Uh, you're do, we're doing tryouts, and and one of the one of the kids said to me, "Hey, you know, you don't have to run so hard." And uh, and uh, and I I can't remember what I said back, but it was basically, you know, like not that I'm going to outwork you, but you know, I need you to try harder. You know, like if you're going to be on the team, like you got to work your butt off, basically. Mm-hmm. And that was how I was taught. Yeah. You know? 
And that was that was strike one. And then some of the other things, I think, is just the way I carry myself in high school BS, right? Like people yeah. make judgments on your exterior and that was the way to go. I was, certainly wasn't athletic. I just tried really hard and wanted to play ball and, and uh, struck out enough with them in that first year. And that mm. just followed me all the way through all the way through my high school career. Kept trying to play basketball. That was the, the strange thing. I wanted to play <laughs> ball, you know, got cut a couple of years and, mm. and, and, and made it as a senior. And still it was, you know, I ran into I ran into one of the one of my teammates uh, in my twenties just in, in in Toronto. We bumped each other on the street, and he was so nice. And he was, "Hey, it's great to see you." And I'm thinking to myself, "You did not say one nice word to me all through like four <laughs> years of ball." How, like I must have interpreted our relationship vastly different. And I think that's what it is, Charmaine. I think it's interpretation mm. and uh, and not having a dad to take it to, and and maybe not speaking up to the people around me, I just absorbed the poor way that I was treated yeah, um, and didn't have any other positive relationships with, with POCs to sort of balance that out. Right. But that is kind of a strange thing about meeting or seeing people later that you went to high school with, because there were people that I remember having like actual rivalries with, or at least like for whatever reason, they didn't like me. I definitely have the issue because I, I present so yellowy, brownish, kind of ambiguously Asian, Latin and not black. A lot of the growing up, a lot of the lighter skinned girls didn't particularly like me or weren't fond of me because I was lighter. And I didn't have that problem. I was I was happy just to be noticed as being black at all. So I was like, mm-hmm. you know, light skin or dark skin, you know, you you notice me. But when I had some <laughs> issues with some of the girls that that were lighter skin and um, and didn't appreciate me later on, like Facebook or whatever, the the 20 year high school reunion you know, they're trying to add me on Facebook, like, hey, girl, how you doing? It's like, you did not like me. <laughs> so it is kind of a weird thing. Like, I don't know if people evaluate later, you know, or just don't remember maybe if they if they were jerks or whatever. I know in my case, I, I, I'm small and I, I, I couldn't fight to save my life. So I was more reactionary. Than okay. actually starting mess. I I always hung out with bigger people so that I knew that if my mouth got me in trouble. I was mouthy, but I wasn't <laughs> like physically done. I, like I think I weighed like eighty pound or eighty nine pounds when I was fourteen. Like I was very small, so I hung out with a lot of bigger people just in case my mouth got me in trouble. And in in hindsight, I wonder like how much of it was just because I was so guarded because of my identity stuff that I came off seeming meaner than I actually was, and and maybe that started some of the. Dry with these people who had drama with me. And now that we're adults, we either don't remember that that was a thing or or we just don't care anymore. And we're like, hey. Yeah. Well, w- water under the bridge is different than time heals all wounds. Yeah. Right. You know, you can see. You know those people. They they they're what that's the water under the bridge. You know I'm a different person. You know I you know I was in high school and I'm trying to you know I'm dealing with my own identity stuff and and I'm talking from the voice of the offender here. And you don't realize you know how your actions were perceived and and most teenagers don't have the language to be able to, to mm-hmm. dis- discuss how those things make them feel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because so, like I wore I wore sunglasses in high school and I was one of the few people that I remember at my high school. Well, actually this was actually I moved from. My 
my my long my Long Beach High School, which was sort of in the hood on the border of Long Beach and Compton, to my Sacramento, my Northern Sacramento High School, which was it was a mix because it was like an old military town, so there was a lot of it was it was definitely diverse, but it was predominantly a white area. And I wore sunglasses all the time because I had light sensitive eyes, but it looked like I was trying to be bad, you know, like I was trying to be hard or something like that. And so I, you know, in hindsight, you start to think about some of these things that maybe had influenced the people's reactions to you. But, you know, for me, I'm just I'm just a confused mixed kid trying to figure out why people don't see me as black when I felt so clearly black. And um, yeah. and then also, you know, I, I have a mean face sometimes. My, my resting face <laughs> is perceived as mean, even though it's really not. It's just, uh, you know, I'm just not going to walk around smiling like an idiot all day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not that uh, people that smile are idiots. I've... No, no, but like, <laughs> you know, the, the kind of constant smiler. <laughs> like, I could never, I could never pull that off. My, I have too big a cheeks. My face would hurt. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that sort of, that I wasn't able to interpret besides those interactions is you start, I mean, you look for identity. We talk, you know, everyone talks about this media representation, mm-hmm. right? So the black white divide, there was no, there was no mixed, right? Like, you know, I, if, if you took Will Smith and Carlton Banks, I, I look more like Will Smith. Mm-hmm. But the narrative of that show frames Will as black and Carlton as white. Right. And that's in Will's that's in Will's cultural ignorance. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he doesn't after the first season, he doesn't go after Uncle Phil like that. You yeah. Know, Uncle Phil is accomplished. Maybe it's because he's rich, but, you know, he's he's light skinned, too. He's mm-hmm. accomplished. He's educated. He doesn't do anything hood. You know, he can he can play pool. He used to run and he used, you know, heard, he heard Malcolm X speak. And but. But Will is the definer of what black is for the generation of people that watch the show. Right. And that's and so, the hood narrative of blackness versus black can be anything. Anything. Right. And so I was more like Carlton. Mm-hmm. And when you watch when you watch media and you pick a hero, you know, I, you know, I'm I'm the one sitting there going, I think Carlton's being hard done by, mm-hmm. you know, and what and he's sensitive and and will, you know likes to bag on him. Yeah. And, you know, and so I'm sort of sitting there going, oh, you know, poor Carlton. That's not how you're supposed to watch the show. Yeah, that's right? true. And I'm sensitive. So I get that. And, and I'm always like, you know what, you know, when Carlton goes to his room, what, you know, what, what informs the tears on his pillow? That's, that's not the point of the show. But I always thought about that, you know, I, you know, Carlton tried the ball. He wasn't good at basketball. Same with me. Like at that level, just not not that good at basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, good at school. I was good at school. Um, did not do well with girls. I did not do well with girls. That's who I saw, and and they were they were framing that as someone to be made fun of. You know, there there are lots of. Yeah. I think my earnestness and and honest nature, without maybe all the social, without all the social skills, got me in trouble. I need to tell that guy that he needs to hustle more. No, I just need to look after myself and play the game. Mm-hmm. Right. But you speak up too much and you're not hood enough or cool enough, you're not going to fit in. And when that's when that's essentially the only black experience at this school um, and with no black teachers to help, you know, provide any different role modeling, mm-hmm. that was that was the start of just some intense confusion for me. Yeah, I, I never actually thought about that, but that is true. I mean, because I'm the I'm the reverse of you in that case and that, uh, you know, we're, we're contemporary. So we were watching the show both around the same time and we're probably about the same age. So for me, I was the light kid in the hood. 
I have my blackness is grounded in the hood mentality. And so even I am guilty, even now at 40 years old, I'm guilty occasionally of sort of accusing my non hood black friends as being white. And usually it's done as a joke. But until someone becomes sensitive about it, I don't realize what damage my own upbringing kind of informed my sense of humor about that kind of stuff. Mm. And so I have a hard time sometimes separating or not all the time, but there are moments definitely particular things that I I have a hard time separating the hood element of my blackness from blackness in general. Definitely a more aware of it now as an adult than I was say in my like early 20s and stuff like that you know but it's it is kind of a strange process like yeah you weren't supposed to be a fan of Carlton if Carlton was your favorite character what would be wrong with you how you know like (laughs) obviously he's not you know so I I, I didn't think about that and that would have a huge impact if he's the only thing that you're seeing even remotely representative of you in media that could really send you you can see the start of that crisis of who you are like I can't be this enemy person. I don't feel like the bad guy. You know, I don't feel like the joke. Why Why am I represented this way? I'll take you one further. When I was in my elementary years, uh, I was already wearing glasses. And, you know, my mom let me make a choice about the type of glasses I, I wore. And mm-hmm. I chose oversized glasses. <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And so when I got to public school in junior high and I'm smart, I've already skipped a grade. I'm new. They don't know me. I'm black and I have oversized glasses as Steve Urkel. So what do you do? You either, you know, resist the labeling or you lean into it. Mm -hmm. And so for Halloween, I would dress up as Steve Urkel and I started doing the voice and doing the, you know, working on the movements and stuff. And that's super cute. If you have a strong sense of self. Right. And and there was just too much turmoil in my life at the time for anyone to even think about checking on me. Yeah. And the thing is, like, humor, and this is something comics talk about, too, like, humor is this mask that helps kind of distract people away from you exhibiting depression or anxiety or anything like that. And so people think you're okay, but you're using it as as a cry for help and you, you know, and no one's responding. So you just continue to internalize and internalize until, you know, the problems that we end up having surfacing from our other issues. I, I had a similar type of thing. Well, not similar exactly in style, but in sixth grade, I got made fun of a lot for having big lips because I was so pale. None of my dark skin friends got made fun of for their their big lips or whatever. I, I, I'm yellow, but I look like my dad My and my father was black. So I have bigger lips and I have the shape of my dad's nose. And although smaller, my brother has my mom's skinnier nose. He, he kind of favors the white side and features, but he has slightly darker skin than I have. And I have the black features, but I have slightly lighter skin than he does. And they would make fun of me and I would I'd be... I'd just, you know, come home crying or I wouldn't be able to deal with it. I didn't understand why it was such a big deal. I remember having a friend and she had like her lips were way bigger than mine. And she was also light skinned, but she was obviously light skinned black versus me, which was, you know, you look black, but what are you? And so it didn't make it didn't make sense to me. Why was I made fun of for having big lips when she had, you know, bigger lips? And it was my my aunt on my mom's side who told me, start making fun of your of your lips to them. Start laughing when they joke with you. And and over time, they'll be so bored of not being able to make fun of you about it that they'll stop. And so it 
sucked to continue to make fun of my like I took mm-hmm. it was so hard to make fun of myself doing that and like it hurt when they agreed right like mm-hmm. you know you'd start capping on your own self and they they would agree and then you you know you'd have to still kind of mask that it hurt you and then you still cry on your pillow at night but when you're in front of everybody you act like everything's okay and over time they did get bored of it and they stopped making fun of me and then of course I, I become a teenager and now big lips mean something totally different than they, it does <laughs> to sixth graders so then I had that I had a whole nother thing to kind of adjust and get get used to and now I love my features but you know when you're in that crisis of identity it's it's really damaging Uh, it did teach me how to use humor to feel better about myself but that wasn't a concept that I could I could wrap my head around at at 12 and 13 years old I had to I had to become an adult to to get there did that happen for you or did you well I mean right now your story is just taking me through um, my high school years and the group of friends that I found and still have, you know, movies was really informative for us. And 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 it, the program that I was in in schools for gifted students, I think uh, all, all of my friends I made were from that program. So we had this, you know, we weren't stereotypical nerds, but maybe how nerds are seen now where they really like something and they just dive deeply into it. Mm-hmm. So it's just being oddly specific. Uh, that that was us. You know, we 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 did fine talking to people, but we really supported each other in our in our oddities and our specificness. Yeah. But for me, I was still the only black person in that group. And, you know, probably, you know, two, maybe two or three people of color in, in, a, in a larger group. You know, the, my boys, I, I would hang around with now, um, you know, sort of five key. Uh, four four key people and myself. I'm the only black guy, um, and so that dynamic started to to develop this humorous trait where you know if they would say something like not a Freudian slip, but just something that would you know sound racial, I would just sort of play in it and I go, oh, "You people are messing around." What you mean, you people? Right? Right. You the, yeah. You put the voice on, and it's like that didn't come from John, but he's he's making this joke and we would just make, we would make jokes an exaggeration of either who we are or what we did, or even the sarcastic where we would broadly say the opposite of what we do. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. uh, what, you know, what'd you do this weekend? Oh man, like I got, I drank so much and like, you know, got laid th- by th- three times and like, well, dude, you are single and you don't have any friends. <laughs> right. And, it, and it's like, yeah, we just, we would just go out and say, say the opposite. Right. I don't know if, I don't know if Americans do that. Like, it's the sarca- sarcastic humor. Is I don't think we do it sarcastically. I think we do it in the attempt to convince people that we're better than than we actually are. Okay, so it's more of a front. It's not really yeah. funny. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the British, um, our British heritage as a British colony, like British people are hugely sarcastic. Mm-hmm. They also like to make fun of each other, which is hilarious. I um, love British humor. I, my, my dad's mother is. And so we do have a little bit of that in our right. upbringing. And there's that thing of being able to put somebody down while giving them a compliment or yeah. what seems to be a compliment is one of my favorite things about that heritage, <laughs> even though I know it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, uh, the theme of uh, the theme of this conversation is tears on the pillow. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, oh, they'll get inside your head for sure. Mm-hmm. I married a British woman, and so I have uh, in-laws, and, and and some of my church com- community as well as mm-hmm. uh, currently is, is British. So I, I appreciate I appreciate having that around me. Anyway, so so yeah, we would I'd just say ridiculous stuff, and we knew within the five of us who we were as people, and would support that, but. 
Um, we, but we never had a race conversation. Mm. So that mm. conversation just was never happening in my life. And I think, you know, when we get to talk about my family, uh, I think that was the whole thing. We're just going to accept John. We're not going to acknowledge his difference. And that will be the best way to, to love him. Right. Yeah. And so then when I was 17 or 18 and got pulled over by a cop for no reason, I didn't have anyone to process this with. Why did I get pulled over? I was right. pulled over. They took my license. He asked me questions about information that was on my license and took my info and took off. Why did he do that? Was my music too loud? Was it because, uh, you know, this neighborhood's full of a bunch of precocious rich kids and he thinks I'm a teenager that needs to be kept in check? Is it because I'm black? Mm. Then how do you interpret that? And, and with no one to process it with, you just start making your own conclusions. And so that sort of burned with anger towards police officers. Right. And that's the event that you reference in Confessions of a Mixed Up Kid song, right? That's right. Yeah. So like, it, it's all good. I can play jokes until I get pulled over. Right. So right. And, and that's the same thing that might have been happening to my basketball teammates. Like we have that in common. But you know, here they are rejecting me. Mm-hmm. Here are some people embracing me. No one's really talking about race. It doesn't matter. Right. You know, for whatever reason, I was a target. And it is a lot worse for black people and people of color in the city of Toronto mm-hmm. and to the east of Toronto. I certainly recognize that one experience does not equate However, my own interpretations are the things I have to live with. Right. And I also had to live with putting that story on wax in my first album and then becoming very good friends with a police officer when I moved to the town I live in now. Mm. Right. How do you reconcile that where you know and love this brother who is a person of color and also a police officer and you have to look him in the face and he says, yeah, I heard your song where you said all cops are stupid, you know? So that's where, you know, my mixed heritage is always always on this fence where, you know, you're supposed to side with Will and I side with Carlton. And it's like, well, now now I see, you know, how, how brothers and sisters of color are being treated by the police. And yet I know and love a friend who's a police officer, mm-hmm. uh, which creates empathy. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a significant moment and and really no one to talk no one to talk about it with in depth that would be able to put race into the frame. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand myself as a person of color until I was in my 20s in university. Mm. One of the things we talked about before was that you because of your lack of other POC to kind of guide you in your identity you had developed sort of a sense of terror in not of black people, but of potentially not being accepted by black people. So you're already prepared to not be accepted because of the experiences of your past. And and as a result, you actually kind of get a sense of terror when you're about to engage mm-hmm. in a black space, even even spaces that you said you've been before many times. When did you start to notice that that was happening? And then how are you or have you processed that that is a thing going on? When did I notice that it was happening? Um, oh boy, this is emb- <laughs> this is embarrassing. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about this. I, I mean, some of us don't even recognize that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. obviously you recognize it enough to bring it up because when you brought it up to me, the what, what you said, and this was one that struck me the most, was you said, like, I've been going to the same barbershop, a black barbershop mm-hmm. for the last, I don't know, what do you say, seven or eight years or something like that. Yeah. But even though you're familiar with everybody in there, every time you're about to walk into that door, you feel this sense of terror. Am I going to be accepted as black? Am I going yeah. to be black? enough so you obviously identify it now but maybe you have had this all along and it took until recently for you to get there 
No, that's that's what I'm thinking about. Like I'm thinking maybe into my into my 30s. Like I'm going to be 37 this year, and and the town I live in now, predominantly white, does have does have a shop, and I've been going there most of the 10 years that I've lived here. But I went to a shop in um, in the town I went to university mm-hmm. in, uh, which is further west of Toronto, and that's kind of my spiritual home. I, I really love that place, Kitchener Waterloo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went to a shop there for years, and even when I moved out of town, I would drive back to get my hair cut. And again, so that's in a bunch of my 20s, mm-hmm. and I didn't know. I didn't know that I was experiencing this, um, but I was. Yeah. And I remember my first album, which is 2007, and and I'm going to say this to you for everyone, something I've only ever said to my wife is as I was making the record, I was going, I had been going through this process of understanding my blackness, um, investigating it, learning some comfort, which involved a lot of like literature and music and plays. And I was just investigating and my white girlfriend, now wife would go along with me. And one of the things I said when I made my first record is I had a song called Good Times with three friends, uh, MC's Nifty, Titus, and probably most famous in Canada, Shad. And I said to my wife, my three black friends are on my record. This is the first, this is the first for me. Mm. That these were friends of mine that I had developed within the music industry um, as a college radio DJ and then as an as a MC uh, and a show promoter. These are people I'd met and become friends with. And they were, honest to goodness, my first black friends. And in 2007, mm-hmm. I was, let me say, um, I thought about my, my dad, who I tried to post-divorce, have a relationship with, um, and he uh, was not really open to it. Um, uh, and his distance, that, that created a big hole. Mm-hmm. When I was a teenager, there was a, an elderly Jamaican couple in my church that they spent some time with me, mentoring me, um, you know, read these books, watch these movies. And, and there was a, a really minor miscommunication and he took it personally and cut off all contact. Um, mm. You had the, the, the folks that's, you know, in my high, in high school, it's just, there was enough from from my formative years for it to be really difficult for me to make friends. And so I started getting my haircut in barbershops only in my twenties because I did not know that that that's what you were supposed to do. Mm. <laughs> so very, very late to the game. Mm. And so again, it's, you know, your dad teaches you to shave. Otherwise you learn to shave yourself. Your dad teaches you what goes on, like how to act in a barbershop. I didn't know I had to learn myself. So you feel like Carlton, and you don't want to look like Carlton. Right. You, you don't want to expose yourself as such. Um, so, like, what do you talk about? All, all of these things. So, yeah, so that was years and years and years. And it wasn't until in my uh, thir- my age 30 year, I was taking a character ed course, and I was just chronicling people I've hurt and people that have hurt me. And I started to stack up the list of black people that had hurt me and <laughs> measure that against all the loving white people in my family and my church and uh, pastors and all. And it was like, man, this list is stacked. It's, right. it's, it seems comical, the number of uh, hurt experiences or people that had let me down 
it, it, yeah, it just seemed really comical to me. There's like, oh, really? Seven, eight people. Like, this is a long, long list. And the t- at the top of it is my father, the one who gave me life and supposed to love me. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I, it wasn't until then that I realized, oh, no, I'm walking in with all kinds of baggage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Even now at, at 37, you're in a familiar space and you still kind of get that, like you, you're now a little bit more comfortable there. You, you know a little bit more what to do and talk about and things like that, but you still kind of have that pause as you're walking into the door. 100%. 100%. I know their names. I know what we can talk about. Mm-hmm. But I'm very rarely going to initiate conversation. And on my even on the opening interactions, watching people walk in the door confidently saying hi to the I'd saying hi to the guys, people that don't look like me that, you know, like, uh, yeah, they're white, but they are more hood or, mm. um, you know, or they or they're West Indian or Jamaican, which is another layer of uncomfortable because I never fit in with my dad's right. friends of that culture. Any 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 sign of difference immediately in my head puts me in my place and no interpersonal interactions happen. I just see them and I see myself. And when I walk out the door, I say goodbye to all of them. And I am never expecting them to say goodbye to me back. Hmm. I just, yeah. I but don't know. do they? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's all my, it's all my own discomfort. It's oh. all my own discomfort, right? Did I say peace the right way? Did I dap them the right way? Like, like it's 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 ridiculous. Mm. Is what it is. But it is the thing that is only slowly eroding, and it's primarily because we have things to talk about, like hip hop and basketball, mm-hmm. which I'm thinking to myself, there's I'd love to talk about more than that. Sure way more than my life you know but those are like those are safe zones yeah the gateway into blackness to a degree yeah so well let's get into that then i have a i'm one of those people like i put it out on front street because i know I, i i have come to a place where i don't mind making other people uncomfortable with my otherness or whatever and i almost feel like it is kind of my responsibility to do it because i remember when i felt it was too scary to do it and and so most recently i lived in massachusetts for about 5 or 6 years and i only pretty much knew white people i only had a couple of poc friends and so it was sort of my responsibility to like overly perform as a mixed race person because i i i wanted them to I wanted to unsettle their their entitlement to spaces because that was something that is tends to be a big issue, especially here in the states, where like people of color aren't necessarily welcome in spaces that it shouldn't matter. Going into a restaurant, doing this, doing that. But so I'm putting myself in these positions where I'm trying to like you know behave just as comfortable as they are, even if I am uncomfortable, or you know talking about race in front of a room full of white people, even though it's going to make them uncomfortable because I feel like you know like I said it's. I I feel like a responsibility to unsettle them so that they have something to think about when we when we part ways. And so as so like my experience of going into a hair salon for the first time, if I'm if I'm going to find a new salon or something like that, is that I would jump in with my my mixedness right off the jump, you know, or I will uh-huh. address it. I will just start talking and it'll be clear from my experiences that I grew up 
black. And then from there, someone would say, you know, I thought you might have been, you know, I thought you might be black. I kind of can see it or da, 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 da. Or, or usually they can just kind of see it and, and they go they go in approaching it from that thing. But the questions they still have is how black are you? How raised black were you? And mm-hmm. and that's so that tends to be my interaction with new black people that I that I didn't get, you know, that don't already know me and see that I'm kind of out there in my blackness. So like and that, that's why it's so interesting to talk to you, because you and I are like two sides of the same coin. <laughs> you know, I don't present black and yet I am living my black life and you do present or at least to me, you do um, yeah. present black and you are trying, you, you know, even as an adult trying to kind of figure out your space. And one of the things I've heard you say a couple of times in our conversations is wanting to know what my place is or, or knowing my place. And so I'm I'm shutting up or something like that. And, you know, for me to have the experience I have where I I don't shut up and you Mm -hmm. seeming like you feel obligated to I'd like to figure out between us what that is and like what gives me (laughs) the thing that says don't shut up and what's giving you the thing that says do shut up like I like I want to get in there I want to tackle it it's probably Mm -hmm. not going to happen on on one episode of of the show (laughs) but it's something like even privately that I would kind of like to talk to you about because it's like I wonder I just wonder what shaped us like what was the things the traumas that we experienced that my trauma forced me to to talk about it out loud and make people uncomfortable and your trauma is kind of trying to not make people uncomfortable and internalize it yeah it's fascinating well i mean you can have me back we'll keep talking we'll keep getting into it <laughs> but i'd like to use that as sort of the segue into talking about your music because the huh? you're a person who not only do you come to hip-hop later you also come yep. to your first meaningful black friendships later in life and and hip-hop being so grounded in blackness and you tending to and and if i'm saying it wrong you know please correct me you tending to kind of be not necessarily settled or comfortable in your blackness how do you continue to push exploring this this your your race through hip-hop even as you're kind of uncomfortable in in your blackness or or not feeling like you necessarily have a place in your blackness that's funny i think i'm gonna sound like a white artist it's okay when i I say this I love it so much. Yeah. I love it so much that I have to just take all the mess that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And I love, you know, for for all of my discomfort that I'm sort of bearing out that I don't talk about, say, in my job or in my church, like, you know, in, in large white spaces, for all of my discomfort, I fight hard for those systems to make space for the other. That's good. That's the thing. Like I have become uh, certainly not the voice. I have become a a voice Mm -hmm. in my school board to say, how are we making space for marginalized groups? Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm working it out that that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm sort of I'm vocal about that. I don't again, not I don't want to offend, but I certainly want to make you aware and and hopefully hopefully through empathy empathy consider you know the space that you take up um and 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 how that will affect mm-hmm. people like me mm-hmm. but then when it comes to music i just like doing it and i like expressing myself that way now i really enjoy taking that to non-traditional audiences now you're gonna have to get a psychologist to tell me if i'm <laughs> hiding from black people um, I think that some of it is being on the west, the west of Toronto. Mm-hmm. There's just fewer POC faces. Sure. Um, 
And then the other thing about making it, quote unquote, making it as a rapper is that it requires, you know, going to shows um, that run hours that that aren't beneficial for my teaching career Mm. or my marriage or or my kids. Sure. So I'm so I'm seeking out non-traditional places to play music. One because Canadian music is uh, such a fusion of genres mm-hmm. that you can do a bunch of different things at once and still be cool. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to play on multi-genre shows. And when I was in a, a town that had much more of a music community, I would purposefully play those shows. I wanted to take the music elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some there's some ways in which that unintentionally creates some safety for me because there's less black people around. Therefore, I can be judged less. Mm. I would not say that's intentional. I think it's just more about me being me. Sure. But I also know that my music itself, just like if you take the stereotypes of rap, it's you're not going to find that in my music. Mm-hmm. So I'm just tr- in the weird way while struggling to carve out space in, in my in my personal life. I have been diligently doing that in, in my musical you know, in my musical expression and now career to to just be me. I know it's not black enough or I know it's not performative hood enough. Uh, I know it's not what you would expect, but I'm actually proud of that. I like it. Yeah. The fact that people like it just encourages me to keep going. Yeah. But it would probably be uh, inappropriate for you to hood it up because you yeah. don't have that experience. And so in uh, regardless of whether or not you are biracial, it would be a cultural appropriation because you are not from the hood. Uh, yeah. It's not cultural ho- appropriation in terms of your blackness, just in terms of, of the hood element. So like to me, that seems entirely like you're you are in the right space. You are representing yourself self in your music because why should you represent someone that is not you right. just to be accepted i i do wonder and i'm i don't know that i'll word the question properly but if, <laughs> as we try to figure it out like i think Go ahead. i think there's something there so you say something about being sort of uh, maybe a little bit more comfortable or or sort of enjoy ha- you know putting your music in front of non-traditional hip-hop audience or something a white audience or or whatever and I wonder, based off your own experience, do you feel a safety in that because you don't have to? Yeah. You don't necessarily, you won't necessarily get the judgment the, of black people that maybe are from the hood. Yeah. And I'm talking about like specifically like a hood blackness versus any other kind of blackness. Like yeah. that you aren't, like you say, being black enough or, or occupying this space enough. Do you feel, do you feel that you might have that fear? Or are you comfortable in rep- the fact that you are representing yourself exactly as you should and therefore, whether it's a white or black audience, it shouldn't necessarily matter. It's it's about the feeling behind mm. your music. Yeah, I don't even know if I think about it. What it matters, I think about my experiences. So so just you know, it's to some degree you can choose where you live or you can choose where you operate. I mm-hmm. remember being in in Kitchener Waterloo and having a, a college radio DJ say, "John is dope, and we I need to get him on stages." Mm. And and so she would then promote shows and get me to other promoters and was a real engine. And she got me on this other, on this hip hop show on her, um, on her college radio station. Like it was some, uh, someone else's show. And it was these two brothers were doing this. And we sat down, chopped it up for half an hour, played a couple tunes and I was fully me and they got it. Yeah. And 
the whole thing for me is it, it feels weird when you think about it. But for me, I'm like, I want to be a, like an ambassador of hip hop. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm studious. I learn the culture. I, I read up on the history. The re- One of the reasons I bring it to non-traditional audiences because I don't want them to be threatened by it. Yeah, it's a it's a global art form, right? It, it is around the world and people are expressing themselves through it. And so that has value and it has it has a lot of value, especially for people who are reductionist enough to only keep it in the hood, mm-hmm. right? What has been happening in the 21st century is that there have been thinkers that have been able to put pen to paper to say, this is why Illmatic has value, mm-hmm. social value, right? Mm-hmm. And and what I want for non-traditional audiences is to say, like, there's a non-violent origin story to hip hop in the same way that if you sit there, if you if you happen to be a right winger, Fox News, what about black on black crime and who's speaking up against that? And you aren't educated to the fact that hip hop is a voice against that and is right. doing stuff, then then you have a problem. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm going to do is share this with you. And I just happen to find myself in those non-traditional spaces more. Mm-hmm. And when I was do when I was starting this, it was just a hobby. So, you know, one show would beget the next show. I didn't really seek out an audience. I didn't really seek out a lot of stages. I just wanted to play where I lived. And as I moved around, I would play. And when I moved into Milton, where I live now, there was no place to play. And so I was going to stop making music. Mm. And what it has done instead is provide this new direction and mutate it a little bit to take my work as a teacher and to take my skills as an MC and a lover of hip hop. And now I'm finding ways to looking for ways to take this into schools. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I started teaching, I didn't want people to know me as the rapping teacher. But now I am this teacher grounded in hip hop culture. And that's, you know, I want to combine those things and yeah. use my my nerdery in a sense to go along with my my skills. And I've never been in a space, Charmaine, where people have thought I was whack. Yeah, I didn't. I don't have to worry about that in a sense, even That's though fair. I don't play as many traditional shows. Sure. Well, I think. See, it's it's funny that you 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 say uh, that because I think you and I are actually kind of doing something similar, even though we have a different way of doing it. You are taking uh, your hip hop that is informed by your your mixed raceness. It's informed by your nerdery. It's informed by your your consciousness of you know social economic issues and racial issues and all this stuff. And you've packaged it into this thing that is cohesive and it makes sense and it, it is beautiful for what you are doing. And you're taking it to a non-traditional space to to make it less threatening to those audiences to give them a gateway into the greater discussions about race and things like that you're giving them access to something that they may not feel comfortable to be exposed to on their own or maybe going into the harder stuff or whatever you're, you're doing all this and and you're you're allowing them to on their own time confront whatever their issues are or their perspectives or their stereotypes just through this wonderful thing that we have music allows us to do this this kind of self like it forces us to to reflect reflect on ourselves you know whether we're listening or we're thinking about it later i'm just going into like say a knitting group full of white ladies and and being like let's talk about race (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. so i'm kind of trying to make them uncomfortable or a little bit thinking about it or something like that and i do I am like there are times when I am trying to do it to make them a little uncomfortable or there's times when I'm trying to do it where they're not uncomfortable, but they are unsettled. So they have to face things. And you, you know, you have this music, 
musical version of that that is like you can just enjoy it on its face value or you can start listening and deep dive and and you hear something i mean there's a lyric i wrote down in confessions of a mixed up kid that something about your chest tightening chest tightening fear every time i have to interact with the black yeah and i'm like for me that was the the lyric that stood out the most i mean it's kind of off the back of the thing about you looking black but but feeling white and then also just that chest tightening feeling like those are the things both in our conversations and in your music that kind of stood out to me or grabbed me right away mm-hmm. because I, I hear that lyric and I'm like, I need to talk to this guy. I need to find yeah. out. Like, <laughs> let's get, let's get in it. Well, not even that. It's just like, I want to understand what I, what part of the mixed race experience I didn't experience because it's not mm. like mine was all positive or anything like that necessarily. Although I, I, I achieved being comfortable in my mixed skin fairly early on. I still deal with a couple of issues. I definitely have a, from time to time, I, I, I get envious of darker skinned people because they don't have to explain how black they are. <laughs> You know, that is a point of something that still bothers me, even though I'm totally comfortable and grounded in my identity. But this is still my baggage. I'm not dark enough for I'm not physically showing how black I am on the inside. And I think all of us kind of deal with that, depending on what race we tend to gravitate towards more for or hope that we can we can. But your experience is so different from mine, because it feels like I didn't I had the exposure. I didn't have the exposure to white people, though. The only white people I knew growing up was my British grandmother. Mm. I, I barely knew my Caucasian grandfather on my mom's side of the family. He was out of the family long before that. I think I could if I really think about it, I probably have only seen him where I was aware of who he was like five times throughout my life. I mean, he was around when I was an infant, but you know, I, I couldn't say that I knew him. I, I could pick him out in the crowd. That's about the extent of my knowledge of him. But I was never around whiteness until I was a teenager. Like, you know, right. maybe here and there in elementary school, I definitely my first racist experience was in elementary school with a white friend. But like in terms of immersion, I didn't get white people. And I always thought mm-hmm. they were kind of unusual and strange. And even though I tend I technically am half white. I will never walk down the street and be accused of being white. I will never be right. accidentally, you know, othered or like categorized as white. It's never going to happen. And yet it right. makes up the most of me ethnically. For me, I just, I always felt that wasn't fair. That was something I really wrestled with. It's not fair mm-hmm. that people can place these outside expectations on me. They can say they can say things that unintentionally hurt my feelings, which, you know, we didn't have the word microaggression in the 90s. Right. They can say they can. They're always going to see me as black. Yes. But that's not fair. And it's not fair to my mom. Right. And it's even more unfair when my mom stuck with me mm-hmm. when my father didn't. Right. And it's even more not fair when me and my brother are the only black faces in these gatherings, right? You know, oh, check that. There's, you know, there's two other guys. So, you know, like <laughs> there's four of us, there's four of us and, and they're, and they're mixed too, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and we never talked about race, but you know, between me and my and distant cousins, my brother and I hardly talk about it, but it's not fair because those people loved me. And mm-hmm. if I am here stinging with the rejection of a father who wouldn't because of his, in his incapacity to do so, mm-hmm. And then these people love me, but the world wants to erase that yeah. by putting some type of expectations of performance on me based on what they see primarily in the media. Mm-hmm. Like it, I'm like, I, I felt like I wanted to fight to be seen as white. And it makes complete sense to do that. I mean, I think about that. I think we may have talked about like Halle Berry when she got the Oscar and they talked about, you know, first black woman to win the uh, best actress Oscar. And I was like, no, she is, she's biracial. And more than that, mm-hmm. she was 
was raised by her white mother. Her interactions with her black father were very limited throughout her life, but yet she identifies as black before anything. And she, in her quarter black daughter, she make she tells her that she's black too, which erases the fact that her daughter is three quarters white. It erases the fact that she is half white. It erases her mom's influence. And like yeah. you saying that too about your own mother, it's like I mean my my both of my parents were biracial, so it's a little it's a little bit different. But I think about that and with my other biracial friends, it's like you because you get othered automatically just off skin tone or skin or whatever you have to sit there and be like no but i'm half white and it you go to a job interview you're not half white you go to mm-hmm. you know you walk down the street in a, a neighborhood that someone might be nervous around black people you're not going to be white there you know mm-hmm. you're not what are you going to wear a t-shirt that says don't worry i'm half white you don't have to be threatened <laughs> by me you know like it's it's an it's unfair that it's unfair as mixed race people that we have to fight for our identity in any way shape or form it's unfair that we have to constantly explain what we are I, there are times when i think you know i should dial it back and i i, I should shouldn't, you know, I should force somebody to accept the fact that it's, they're not entitled to this information. This is something Mm -hmm. that I I can choose to share or not. And yet I still tend to be very vocal about it because I am kind of screaming for my place. Like, you know, I I am mixed race. I am so proud of being mixed race. I love that I was exposed to my Japanese culture. I love that I grew up, you know, even, even if it was the hood, I love that I grew up around black people. I love the music of where we, where we grew up. I loved having Mm -hmm. cookouts, you know, all of these things that sort of feel like instant family, whether you're related to these black people or not, when you're walking down the street, those moments really do enrich me. I don't have a white version of that. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, in the song, I sort of talk about, you know, where that, where those things get triggered is a question that people ask. And in Canada, we call it the question. Mm. uh, Well, people of color do. I was, I'm taking a, I'm taking a stand-up comedy class right now. And and it's so, um, it's so ethnically diverse. And it was great schooling some of the white folks on what the question means. Mm. I heard it the first time from a mixed uh, race author named Lawrence Hill, who's Canadian. Mm -hmm. And um, he's gained a, a lot of prominence here. He wrote a book called Blackberry Sweet Juice, um, Reflections on Being Mixed Race, on Being Black and White in Canada. Um, And when I stumbled onto that book, this is when I first recognized myself as a person of color, I think, as like as uh, an adult. Mm. So the question he goes around and asks a number of mixed race Canadians about this, where they start digging, right? You are, we're encountering each other in Canada, and I want to know more about you. Where are you from, right? The answer Mm -hmm. for me would be Brampton. Ontario, right? right? But the, that's not the answer that they want. That's not the answer. They, they are they're digging for your parentage and they're digging for, and I, uh, you know, for me, my parents are mixed. So I've got one Canadian mother who looks like she belongs because she's white. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, the black side of me doesn't belong. My The black side of me is an immigrant. Mm-hmm. And it's a double-edged sword in Canada because we very clearly claim this heritage, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's the fight to assimilate or the demand to assimilate usually comes from conservative white folks like in in large spaces and city spaces in Toronto, you'll see it's so celebratory. Come and be Portuguese. Come and be mm-hmm. Jamaican. Come and, and be yourself and live in your this country as yourself. And, 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 and those two things will start to merge. So you're, 
you're not African, uh, you're not necessarily African Canadian if you're black, you're Jamaican Canadian, or you're just West, or we just West Indian or whatever it is. But, but, but people want to know, especially, you know, white folks or British and French heritage folks, they, they really want to know mm-hmm. what's that thing that, that tells me that you don't originate from here. Right. I'm like, Which is oh, hilarious that- because you don't originate from here either. <laughs> Exactly. Especially, especially as we learn about our indigenous brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and how much we, how, how much we have taken from them. Right. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk about land, let's get into it. You know, it's like W. Kamau Bell's joke about, uh, I saw the video of the cop, you know, throwing that 15 year old girl across the room. I need the whole story. Mm-hmm. And he says, okay, the whole story, our story begins at the transatlantic slave trade. Word. Wait, <laughs> why are you running away? I thought you wanted the whole story. Yeah. Right. If we start poking Canadians about where this land actually comes from. Um, we have a lot of shame to own up on and our mm-hmm. national dialogue is just starting to get there mm-hmm. so I, I i always take offense i'm like fool my mom is like eight nine generations here my mom's family pr- probably outdates yours right so why are you worried about my immigrant father yeah especially when you have to remind me that he's not in my life because he's too broken to love me right that leaves me damaged and da 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 right so Anytime you ask that question, you're opening up the wound. Yeah. You're opening up the box and you what you have to make me you need to know this information, right? Mm-hmm. Like your mind is so close to what Canada is that you can't ask anything else about me before you get to where I'm from. Without that, it also turning into, oh, why do they always have to go there? I'm asking yeah. this question. And that's very similar here too. It's it, and it's a constant it's it's any time that I leave yeah. the house, it will happen. I I don't I don't get it. I find much more sensitivity and a willingness to answer the question in dialogues with other people of color, other mm-hmm. Canadians of color. They they even frame the question differently. What's your background? Mm-hmm. And isn't that funny too? Like my go-to story about this is an experience I had on an airplane where it was a, a three-seat row and it was a black lady at the window, a white kind of hippie free spirit type lady um, in the center and I was in the aisle. And she, I had my headphones on, the black lady was reading a book and the white lady is just looking at me. I can see her mm. in the peripheral eyes and she is waiting to figure out how to an- ask the question. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here going, all right, get ready. The question's coming. And she, you know, she starts in with, uh, you know, she's talking about her daughter and she's going to go to LA and blah, blah, blah. And her daughter is um, going to get married. So she's probably going to meet her fiance. And then she pauses awkwardly because I know there's more to it with the fiance, but she doesn't say it yet. And then she's like, are you from LA or are you going to LA? What are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm from there, but I live in Boston and da, 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 da. And I'm waiting. Um, she's trying to figure out how to get mm-hmm. there. And she does. It takes a while, but she finally does get there. And she says, well, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from California. Oh, okay. That's nice. But, but like, where, where, where from? And I'm like, oh, I was born in Sacramento. I grew up in Long yep. Beach, you know, and I'm making her work for it. Cause I know then this is what I'm talking about. Like in you terms of like making it. white people uncomfortable. It's not like I'm out yeah. there just like, you know, ah! I'm really just, I'm forcing them to confront why they think it's there. They need to know. So it's like, oh, born in Sacramento, you know, grew up in Long Beach. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Uh, what's your nationality? Oh, I'm American. I was born in California. California is in America. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Cause I thought it was going to be like Latino or or Filipino. I'm like, no, um, the nation that I was born in was the United States of America. So my nationality is American. And then it's like, oh, wait, so that word doesn't mean what I think it means. You know, like you can see the wheels turning and then it gets, you know, it goes down further. It's like, oh, yeah, because you look so and this is the this is the one that hurts my heart the most. The one that like if you're going to see me flip I'm in my diplomacy flip anyway, this is the statement. 
you look so exotic. Oh, where are you from? So, fellow exotics, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know you're out there, and you hate this question too. I always tell white people, I stop them. That's when I stop them dead in their tracks. Yeah. Do not, do not tell us that we look exotic, and then ask us where we're from, because what you've just done there is you have told me I am the standard and you are an other. I need mm-hmm. to know where to classify you or categorize you. Mm-hmm. And I said that to this woman and the black lady who has not looked up this whole time, but you and I know, like she is feeling me. We are not making eye contact, but we <laughs> we are sharing the space right there and we, we know what's happening. And so this is the first time she goes, hmm. You like that, you know, you just hear it. <laughs> and and I was like, you know, I, I know that I have family in the corner over there. And at some point she might come in if she feels like she has to. And and the lady just stops <laughs> in her track, the white lady. And she's like, oh, oh, my gosh. Oh, I didn't realize. And I'm like, I know that you think that you meant well. But I need you to understand that when you ask that question, you are you are hurting people. You are making them realize that you think you are better than them. And mm. that sucks. And we have to deal with it on a daily basis. And she just like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't think about that. Blah, 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 blah. And then she goes dead silent. And not two minutes goes by. And what does she say? But where are you from? No way. <laughs> it's like, come on. She you got double down. She went in and I was like, look, lady, I know that you want to know. And I know I'm making it hard for you. I'm like, but you need to understand that you do not have the right to this information. I can choose to share it with you, but it is not, I don't have to. And it's not your place. And she's like, oh, okay, I'm sorry to make you uncomfortable. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm just trying to tell you so that you don't do this to other people. And then she tells me why it's so important to her. Her daughter is about to, is engaged to, and she whispers it, I'm Mexican. (laughs) And I said, why did you whisper that? And she goes, whisper what? And I said, Mexican. And she goes, oh, I don't know. Oh my gosh. And and she goes, so it's my first time ever having to deal with that. And that's, so that's why I'm curious. And I'm like, first time having to deal with what? Uh, meeting a Mexican or having a Mexican in your family? <laughs> and she was like, I guess both. And so she goes, and so I'm just now more aware of people that look different. And that's why she wanted to know what I was. And so I'm trying to figure out what in her life, how small is her world that this is the Mm -hmm. first time she's ever having to confront being around people of color. And so much so that now this curiosity in asking directly, like, I don't know, I assume she asked before because, you know, white people tend to, but she said it in such a way that was like, I never had to think about anybody but us. So now that I see you and now that I know I'm going to have a Mexican person in my family, I, I am suddenly curious, where are people from? What are they into these days? You know, like whatever. And it was it's it, so it's the go to story that I have because it is something that happens to me very frequently. Right. But she was a turning point for me because she was the first time I realized I didn't have to tell her. Yeah. I used to always tell people and sometimes I still do. But she was the first person that showed me like in that conversation. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to. Like, I like. I was tempted to just tell her I was Caucasian British and just let her deal with it. Yeah. Like, I was tempted to do it because it was like, you know, I'm only going to tell you the white and then you just have to deal with why I'm so yellow. You know, I, it was just, it's just one of those things that really changed my perspective. And this wasn't that long ago. This was only about probably 2013 or 2014. Uh, so I see what you're saying now about being willing to make people uncomfortable mm-hmm. to to make a point. And I guess what's eye-opening to me is that you're not just going to create the discomfort 
without being willing to explain whether they get it or not. Right, exactly. Right? And I probably should have been clearer when I when I said that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a teaching moment. It sucks that right. it's not my responsibility to teach. No, no but it's not. who else is going to do it? And yeah. since I feel comfortable that I'm going to be a fairly decent representative of. Oh, gosh, I was about to say that. And I do not want to say that. <laughs> uh, I was about to say this horrible thing of I feel that I'm a decent representative of my various ethnicities to mm-hmm. to be able to show a white person that it's OK. But now that mm. like once it was starting to hit my tongue, I realized that's not the lesson here. I do not want us. <laughs> I do not want us to feel that responsibility to right. perform in such in such a way that is acceptable to to people that would other us. So I definitely want to stop myself from saying something like that. But I will at least say that I feel like I'm a, I'm I'm comfortable enough in discussing race and and can put it into a perspective well enough I think to show that even to a person who is coming at you with a lot of ignorance that I'm not going to back down just because you're ignorant. It, you know, like if you are going to continue to come at me ignorant, I'm going to continue to block your ignorance at every turn. And later on when you're thinking about it, you're going to have to sit there and say, man, that makes girl didn't let up on me. Maybe I should think about this a little bit more. Or you're going to continue to swim in your ignorance. But at least I can walk away and feel like I tried. Yes. And that's the point, right? Is like for us, we need to be able to live. And and that's, you know, that's my hope. So like you said, you're not responsible. So you don't feel responsible. You can choose to engage. Mm -hmm. You can choose to evaluate the people that um, are asking you the question and see how much you want to, you know, let them off the hook or... Mm -hmm engage them in, in deeper measures that that's a that's a really neat story because I felt I felt that discomfort mm-hmm. um, and it's also it's been a while since I've tried to make that explanation mm-hmm. and I think I think a lot of that is just having a lot of kids in a short amount of time mm-hmm. got I've got five I'm blessed <laughs> with uh, three and one go to go from oh my gosh you have five. a set of triplets I didn't realize I that do. I knew you had five yeah. kids and I didn't realize that three of them came at the same time <laughs> it is a lot of work and uh, and they it recontextualized my my album what for one reason is that it came out after the triplets were born hmm. so I had been trying to finish it before they were born and so I would I would work on it in sort of 15 minute windows whenever I had a small break um, so you know my my world is com- has been you know the triplets are almost four now uh, yeah is being completely reordered and mm. so some of those things some of those deep questions you have a little less time for uh, even though I want to figure them out you know within myself mm-hmm. but parenting is a parenting's a part of that yeah I do uh, want to get into that too we have crossed over into like an hour and so I feel like maybe we should just come back together and go into the the fatherhood while mixed discussion because it is something that I definitely want to deal with but before we wrap up I just want to make sure that you get a chance to tell everybody how to find you how to find your music we are going to play out the episode with your song confessions of a mixed up kid and so people get a chance to hear you but let everybody know how to find you and how to follow you. Certainly. Um, the name's John Corbin, uh, no H, J-O-N-C-O-R-B-I-N. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, it's at John Corbin Music. Spotify is uh, the place where that I'm promoting. I've got uh, all my catalog up there, including mm-hmm. uh, my latest singles, You Care, and On Tonight. You can check out um, the video for You Care, um, a, a video from 
the album A New Direction, this song called Without You. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my label is Lost and Found Music. Um, you can find that at lstnfnd.com. L-S-T-N-F-N-D, Lost and Found. All right, great. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on and sharing with me. I know we, we didn't cover everything that we wanted to talk about, but that just means that I get to talk to you again, so that's great. We're talkers. Yeah, We're talkers. yeah I know. We can't help it. And honestly, that's, that's <laughs> what this is about, right? We're trying to have our voices yeah. out there. So, all right. Yeah, let's go ahead and... And say goodbye for now, and then I hope to talk to you again soon. Peace, y'all. All right. When, you, when you're watching this go on, does it break your heart to see this happen? Oh, definitely. I mean, what it is is young boys, the young folks in the community showing decades old of anger, frustration for a system that's failed them. I mean, this is bigger than Freddie Gray. This is about the social economics of, of poor urban America. And, uh, you know, these young guys are frustrated, they're upset, and unfortunately, they're displaying it in a um, very destructive manner. Yes, yes, we all know the narrative. What's wrong, bro? Ferguson scaring ya? Then the world reacts, all too embarrassing. Eyes all around, you can feel them staring in. Well, that's what I'm on right now. Just watch me walk around in my small town. Pretty but pretty white. It's silly, I still fright that they'll only see me as black when I mostly feel white. I'm a mixed up kid in a self-assigned much blind suburban bid. But focus on aesthetics will only leave me indebted. More like in chains on a slavery refrain. Do I fit in because I'm paper bag vetted? Do you like me because your black appetite is wetted? Through much music and MTV. Full of your expectation, I am empty seat. My cultural shorthands too innate to express. The attempt only puts my mind in duress. Yes, this messed up psychology bothers me and possibly hinders my mood. Movements on every shopping spree. I'm mixed too. I know you guys can't tell me looking at me because I'm a consistent shade. Biracial, multi ethnic. My uh, mother was black and my father was absent. So I'm like half black, half empty. I remember when I first heard Lawrence Hill connect me with young brothers up in Forest Hill. I never started from the bottom, but I knew I had a problem. My Rolling Stone papa treated me as forgotten. My high school years down in Lauren Park. Intelligent kid, I am going far. But the black side of town was the foreign part. And you know I was judged well before the start. But never mind the black folks, I just love the black jokes. Especially playing stereotypes. Ham it up for my friends, it's embarrassing, right? Until I got stopped one embarrassing night 5-0 drive slow wasn't steering me right Already backing down, not preparing to fight I knew it wasn't racial, but the scariest sight Was even though I was wrong, I could swear I was right Since you have dark skin, a lot of people just automatically identify you as African American But the person who was African American in your family Your father was gone and your mother is white And the part of your extended family that you've been most in touch with is your mother's side, which again is white. So it, I, I could imagine a sense of disconnect of being, you know, externally identified as African American because of your skin color, but at the same time feeling like everybody in, you know, every, all of your like blood family that you, you know that's still in your life is white. I'm not sure what the yeah. question is. Well, maybe there isn't a question here. 
Maybe you just need to give an invitation to speak. And trust me, if it's an invitation I trust, I will bust because of too many years of the question. You know the question. John, where are you from? But you never accept Canada as the answer. It's not a microaggression to me because it tears open this box of memories, blowing up my past, sending shrapnel into my present reality. Your answer to the question is, my dad's from Guyana. My answer is much more complex. It's the generations of Swiss and German settlements, years of farming, keeping the peace, and serving the Lord. My mom is not merely white, just as my dad is not merely black. And all the doors you open when you fish for my non-Canadian heritage. You just remind me of the broken father who didn't know how to love, who passed down no cultural inheritance, giving me nothing but a chest-tightening fear every time I have to interact with a black person. See, I'm a mixed-up kid. A mixed-up kid with a white family who accepts me, who gives me a secure sense of self when I'm with them. So it's okay if you see black. Just keep the whole picture intact. And if you don't see black or you lack tact, well, we've got much more to discuss than that. It's still a fight. I'm still wrestling wrong and right. Lord, can you help me be me? Can you help me be me? And even when it's not okay, all I know is I can't run away. Lord, I'ma try and be me. Try and be me. It's still a fight. I'm still wrestling wrong and right. Lord, can you help me be me? Can you help me be me? And even when it's not okay, all I know is I can't run away. Lord, I'ma try and be me. Try and be me. Hey. I am black and you're welcome. And I, I prefer black if you're gonna address me by race. And I know you <laughs> in a conversation. Like you can't just come up to me and be like, black. <laughs> Run away. Did he hear it? <laughs> I love this game. Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Johnson. Music is by David Bogan, The One. Special thank you to John Corbin for sharing his song Confessions of a Mixed Race Kid, available on Spotify. And if you like what you heard on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Militantly Mixed and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Militantly Mixed. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.